we, we began a series last week, and I'm going to be talking about that in a moment, but, um, and you see the logo, the time is now. We, we wanted to take, uh, some weeks, uh, out. We, we were planning to go directly back into Revelation, um, you know, as, as of last Sunday, but as a staff and leaders, we just felt like it was maybe timely that we, we stop and we kind of review uh, some essential commitments, kind of what 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 maybe ought to look like to be a church, and uh, in and and in this new year, and so remind you of our our mission, which you uh, see uh, on the sign outside and on several of our publications. Our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. That's that's kind of the simple way we think about what it is that we are called to be and to do here. And, the, and our, our vision statement is that we would make disciples who make disciples here, near, and far. And so as we, as we live our lives together, as we grow in Christ together, uh, we know that God's word tells us that we're to become reproducers. And so uh, our, our vision is that uh, we, as we are growing in our discipleship, become reproducers uh, and that we do that here uh, in, in this church, in Thurston County, Olympia, Malaysia, Tumwater, wherever it is you hail from here means home. Near means uh, in our community and, uh, and, and in our, our, uh, our state, our nation. And then far represents uh, international missions. And you know that we support missionaries uh, currently in England and in Japan and in Togo. And we are going to continue to support those. And you're going to be hearing uh, more in uh, the the coming year about ways that we're making a deeper commitment to our mission in Togo and uh, ways that you can become involved in that. So that's our mission and our vision. And and so we wanted to take these weeks out, four weeks, uh, for this current mini-series, which we've titled The Time Is Now. And... There are four essential commitments that we are wanting to call you to, call ourselves to, in this new year. And, and they are show, know, grow, and go. Would you say that with me? Show, know, grow, and go. And uh, we hope that you'll be able to remember those. Uh, show, know, grow, and go. The last week, we, we, we thought about that word show, and, and we look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. And, and in that message, I challenged each of you to show up in church every Sunday that you're able, uh, to worship God, learn from God's word together. Um, there's an urgency about being in community with each other as we do the things that God has called us to do. Secondly, that you would show up in a life group, uh, to build community with a small group of others in the church to care and be cared for, to know and be known, to pursue spiritual growth together in those places. And we are reprioritizing, reemphasizing uh, the importance of uh, small groups within our church, particularly life groups. And then third, to show up as a LifePoint Church partner. Um, and uh, I won't take the time to, to completely uh, describe that, but if you're new to LifePoint, partner is our word for member. And uh, at the back are these packets that Kathy graciously put together for us. This is an old school way of doing this, paper and pen, but uh, you can fill out the forms here and 
um, move in the direction of partnering with LifePoint, becoming a member. And uh, I'll just say this much, to, to be a, the concept of membership uh, has kind of collected some baggage over the years, maybe some undesirable baggage. And so we, we chose a different word when we started LifePoint Church, and that word is partner. And the reason for that is that uh, whereas we can think of membership as involving privileges, uh, partnership involves mutual investment, uh, mutual risk, uh, mutual benefit. Uh, partnerships win and lose together. And and so we're simply asking that you can seriously consider making a commitment to LifePoint Church. And, and by doing that, you're saying uh, to each other that, uh, that I'm here for you, uh, saying to the leaders, this is the place where I want to serve. This is the place where I want to be cared for. And uh, so we know that, that you are among those that we have a responsibility to care for. Well, this week, at uh, in this message, we want to explore that second essential commitment uh, for each of us at LifePoint, which is to know, to know, specifically to genuinely know God and to genuinely know each other. To genuinely know God, to genuinely know each other. Now let's begin with that first one, to know God. The Old Testament prophet Hosea wrote to the nation of Israel, let us know, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We're here in the Pacific Northwest, the spring, summer, fall, and winter rains that water the earth. The psalmist in Psalm 63 described this pressing on to know the Lord as his soul following hard after God. I love that expression, following hard after God and finding in God the satisfaction of all that he ever longed for. But we have to ask the question, how is it possible? How is it that that God, who is utterly other in his holiness. And by the way, that that's the essential meaning of that word holy, that, that he is other, he is utterly other than we. Um, how is it that God who is utterly other in his holiness, who is the eternal one, the creator of heaven and earth, whom the apostle Paul described as the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, who is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. How is it that this God can be known by mere mortals? And the answer is that he can be known, but that he can be known only because he has chosen, made the gracious choice in his sovereign will to make himself known. And how has he done that? Now, this morning I'd like to point out five ways that God has revealed himself to us, that he has made himself knowable, and uh, so that we would act on those things. We would understand them and, and understand how, that we, how we should act on them. First of all, then, God has made himself known through his creation, through what has been made. In Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky 
above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day uh, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You see that word speech in the middle of the uh, of that passage. That word is language. Um, and, and so there is no language, no words, uh, no speakers of any language who do not hear the voice of God through his creation. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 put it this way, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And and then he says, so that they are without excuse. God has made himself uh, fundamental facts about him, truths about him, his nature, his character, made that knowable through what has been, been created. God has communicated his existence. He's communicated his presence. He's communicated powerful truths regarding himself to every person at every time in every place through the created order, that is, through what he has made. And in so doing, he has made each of us accountable for our response. You say, well, that's pretty bare bones. God says it's enough. It's enough to be accountable. And as we're overwhelmed, as, as, we, as we observe the enormity and the complexity of creation, we know intuitively that it points to a, an infinitely powerful, intelligent, purposeful, and wise creator. And I say intuitively because that's what God is saying here to us. You know it intuitively. You can put your all of your human wisdom, you can put all of your human science in the way of that, but fundamentally you know intuitively that it points to an infinitely powerful, intelligent, purposeful, and wise creator capable of designing and producing infinitely intricate and incredibly complex variety and beauty. The child, viewing the astonishing beauty of a sunset, and the biology student dissecting a complex organism, are each exposed to persuasive evidence of the presence and the power of God. The American writer and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, All I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. A Swedish poet and pastor, Carl Gustav Boberg, expressed his response in these words, O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. 
So God has made himself known and knowable through creation. God has made himself known by his acts in history, especially in the history of the people of Israel, uh, beginning with the call of Abraham all the way down to the present and beyond. And central to that history and to the continuing identity of the Jews is their remembrance and their rehearsal of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt through the plagues and the Passover, passing through the Red Sea, his personal presence, his provision in the wilderness, his gift to them. May I emphasize again that his gift of them, to them of the land of Canaan as their eternal possession, the land of Israel. God's ongoing preservation of Israel as a nation is the direct fulfillment of his promise to them. And I think, you know, people have have marveled uh, through the generations about the perseverance, the persistence of the the people of Israel as a people, as a as a distinct people in the world, less than two percent of the total population of the world. People have attributed that to the fact of this rehearsal um, with their children on a consistent basis of, 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 of what God has done for them through, through the ages. At the center of that, the, the great symbol that they keep rehearsing is, is, is the Exodus and the Passover. God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And every Jewish child who, who learns the Haggadah, the, the, uh, the order of the Passover remembrance, will we'll use the word we, not they, not those people that lived thousands of years ago, but we were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt. God has made himself known by his acts in history. And uh, he's he's making himself known even today uh, in and through Israel in the news. Third, by the way, by the way, if you want to you want to find you want to read some inspiring stuff, go on. Just Google um, miracles uh, during the current war in Israel. Miracles that have occurred, have occurred during the current war in Israel. There are things that have happened in this war on behalf of Israel that are unexplainable. It doesn't make the media, it doesn't make the news because they're baffled by it. But there are some amazing stories of God's deliverance of uh, the Israel Defense Forces uh, during the current war. Third, God has made himself known through his creation of humankind, both male and female. And what this means in part is that we recognize and we celebrate in each other the reflection of his image. A hundred years ago, when I was a youth pastor, um, we used to sing this little chorus, uh, and, and it just went like this, I love you with the love of the Lord. I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of my King, and I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of my King, and I love you with the love of the Lord. In Genesis 1, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are created in the image of God to reveal him, to serve as signposts in the world that point to him and to serve him as his stewards ruling over the world he created. I'm not sure we're doing a great job at that. Sometimes I think God would say, you had one job. (laughs) But in order to be those signposts, in order to be those stewards and those rulers over creation, He created us with unique physical, mental, moral, and spiritual capacities to think, to reason, to make moral judgments, to create, to relate personally to him. You think about that. God God could have created us, but not instilled within us a capacity to know him. Right? I mean, he could have done that. And, And... and and then we would never have known him. We would never have been conscious of him. But he created us for relationship. Created us with the capacity to relate to him. The psalmist, reflecting on the place and the purpose of mankind and the whole of creation, said to God, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so as we're we're overwhelmed with the ungodliness of mankind in the world and the ungodliness of our own lives, at times, we would say, still, we see the image of God in humanity. That, that God has created mankind uniquely to point to him. Fourth, God has made himself known through the scriptures. He's made himself known through the scriptures. We get to know him as we read, as we study as we meditate on the word of God, as we apply it in our lives. This is at the heart of the reason that we are committed here at LifePoint to teaching and learning God's word. We want to be all about God's word. And by the way, just to reiterate what Evan said earlier about the Bible reading program, that's just one other tool in your toolbox related to the Word of God, to know Him. To know Him. And I think if if we'll commit to that, and if you get behind, don't worry about that. Just keep going. 
Go at your, go at your own pace, but make it through. And, and, uh, you know, we're going to hear some amazing stories of things that people have discovered. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know God was like that. I didn't know that thing happened. Wow. I think we're going to hear lots of stories like that uh, as as we do this together. But as we read God's word, we, we come face to face from the from the very first verse of the very first book with the person of God. In the beginning, God. Oh, that's what this book is about. In the beginning, God. And as we read on through the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we're, we're immersed in the, the unique person and the nature and the character of God as we see his actions and his interactions with real people living real lives in real places and times. Do you know that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 names and descriptions of God in the Bible? Uh, I've had people say, Pastor Jim, would you, would you do a series through the names of God in the Bible? And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's like four years. <laughs> four years. How many of you like people to remember your name? All of us, right? I used to be really good at remembering names. I, as I've gotten older, it's like, but I want to. Why? Because nothing is more personal than a name. God is personal. God is relational. The primary purpose of, of God's revelation is not merely to make us more knowledgeable. Amen? I mean, it's important to have knowledge, uh, but it's not just for the sake of knowledge itself. God, God doesn't want all of us to become biblical and theological pinheads, right? I mean, that's, that's not what he's looking for. In the Bible and in the walk of Christian discipleship, knowledge about God is always for the purpose of knowledge of God. Information is always to lead to interaction, that is, to a personal relationship with him. The names of God in Scripture have have two basic sources. They are, first of all, names that God himself has revealed. For example, in Exodus 3, he identified himself to Moses as, for the very first time, as in Hebrew, Yahweh. Uh, Some people choose to pronounce it Jehovah, Yahweh. In Hebrew, it means I am that I am. Um, he is the eternally existing one. And over and over again in the, the chapters and the books that follow, he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And there are other examples, but, but many of the names of God in the Bible are names that others have given him in response to his actions on their behalf. So, in the pages of Scripture, I'm just going to give you the kind of the core set of the names of God. In the pages of Scripture, we come to know him as El Elyon, uh, the Most High God, as El Shaddai, the Almighty God, as El Roi, the God who sees, 
as El Olam, the everlasting God, as El- Elohe Yisrael, the God, God, the God of Israel, and Adonai, the Lord. And he is Yahweh, the great I am, the, the Lord, the eternal self-existent one. He is Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, uh, the Lord of hosts, or, the, or in the song that we sing, the God of angel armies. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Yahweh Tzidkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Makadesh, the, the Lord who makes us holy. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord who is there. Yahweh Jireh, or it's pronounced in Hebrew, Yireh, the Lord who provides. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord, our healer. Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord, our shepherd. He's the creator and he is a sustainer of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the, the God of all grace. He is the lover of our souls. Now I could go on and on. He is the, the God who loves you, who loves me. He is the God whom, whom we have the opportunity to love in return. We, as John said, we love him because he first loved us. In my preparations this week, I came across this beautiful promise of God to his people, Israel, in the book of the prophet Hosea. He says, I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Isn't that great? I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. May that be the prayer of our hearts and, and our prayers for the nation of Israel itself to whom those words were first spoken. Finally, God has made himself known supremely through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know God. In the opening verses of the first chapter of his gospel, the apostle John wrote regarding Jesus, in the beginning was the word. And let me just pause there for for a moment. Um, there are two ways of under, two basic ways of understanding the word word in John one. The Greek word there is logos, logos. Some of you pronounce it L O G O S. We can understand it that way as word, simply word, and that's that's the foundational meaning of that of the word logos, it represents a word. And so in that we understand that Jesus, because this passage is speaking about Jesus, Jesus is God's communication to us. He is the word. You might say he's the final word uh, regarding God to us. But that word also means, logos also in, in Greek philosophy, Greek culture, they understood that there was a central organizing principle to everything. To all of the universe, to all that exists, material and immaterial, that there was a central principle. And the word that they chose for that was logos, word. The organizing principle, the central thing in all of life is the logos. And John chooses that word to describe to the Greeks, to a Greek culture, Jesus. Jesus is the main event. He is the central principle. And then 
Before I move on, the word was. We can think about that when in English we go, okay, that's past tense. In the beginning, was the word. He was, past tense. But that's not what that word means. It means in the beginning, the word was in continual existence. You have to use the word was to explain the word was. It, it, it describes eternal existence. So in the beginning, the word existed eternally. And the word existed eternally with God. And the word existed, that existed eternally was God himself. That's what John is saying. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was arrested and would eventually, in just a matter of hours, go to the cross, he was spending those final precious hours with his disciples. And and in the course of the conversation, one of the twelve, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Would you have loved to have been Philip at that moment? <clears throat> Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And all along the way, Jesus made some audacious and startling claims that left people standing in their tracks. On one occasion, he said to some Pharisees who took pride in their command of the scriptures, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Don't you get it? <laughs> Don't you get it? In chapter 10, he, he brought speculation to an end regarding who he thought he was. And I think people often would have said, who does he think he is? When he said plainly, I and the Father are one. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty definitive. I and the Father are one. In the first three verses of the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer makes this announcement regarding the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Jesus is God's last word. In these last days, he has spoken to, to us by his son. In what is probably the most familiar verse in all of the Bible, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The promise and provision of God for those who believe in the son of God is eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus added this, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. This eternal life that God, that Jesus gives, that God gives to those who trust in his son Jesus, doesn't begin at the moment we die. It begins at the moment that we believe in him. We receive everlasting life. And that life, Jesus wants us to know in John 10.10, is abundant life. The gift of God for those who by faith look to Jesus is life, abundant and eternal. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus provided us with a definition and a window into the very essence of life itself when he said, and this is eternal life, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You might say, well, the fact is that most people don't believe in Jesus. And many people, even when they're presented with with the whole enchilada, right, with, with complete information about Jesus, about God's plan of salvation, of, of, of who God is, of who Jesus is, and on and on and on. Even when they're presented with all of that, they don't receive him. They don't believe in him. They don't receive him. And that's absolutely right. You, many don't. That's been true from the very beginning. John tells us also in that first chapter of his gospel, John 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And the Apostle Paul wanted us to know that the problem is not primarily a matter of the mind, but of the heart. Most everyone can grasp biblical truths conceptually, but they can't internalize it. Why is that? Paul wrote Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He's saying this should not characterize you. This should not be a description of you who have trusted in Jesus. Notice the words he uses there, futility. Futility of their minds. Darkness, darkened in their understanding. Alienated. Alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their poor intellect. Is that what it says? The weakness of their minds? No, due to their hardness of heart. 
So what has to happen? See, the lights are on, no one's home. They hear the information, it doesn't compute. What has to happen in order to turn that condition around? They need to download an entirely new software to run the new program. There it is. Earlier in that same letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, he described the necessary download. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here's the download, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, the necessary download for you and me and anybody that God is calling to himself is the Spirit of God, who is the gift of God, to all who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, all those whom God is drawing to himself. In his gospel, Matthew records this astounding declaration from Jesus at the start of his public ministry. He said, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. On another occasion, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So if you're hearing the voice of the spirit speaking into your heart and mind, creating within you the desire to know God, then I invite you today to put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God is calling you to himself. 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer wrote that the impulse to pursue God originates with God. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. The life of discipleship is a life of pursuing God, following hard after him, laying everything else aside, as Paul said, to know him. So under know, the first call is to know God, to know him at a deeper level than you've ever known him. I invite you to that in this new year. I invite you to pursue hard after God and and to, to make it your goal to know him at a deeper level than you've ever known him. The second thing we're calling you to as men and women, boys and girls in this church is to know each other, to know each other. For those who know God, who are pursuing him, the second commitment is to know the people of God, to know each other, to know the church, to know the body of Christ, in the last week, we thought together about that exhortation in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And notice the two occurrences in these two verses of that two word phrase, one another. 
one another. Do you know that there are 57 other occurrences of those phrases, the phrase one another or each other, in the New Testament? 59. I'm just about finished this morning, but before I conclude, I just want to invite you to join me in reading all 59 aloud. I want to put these words in your mouth because I want you to be aware of them and I want you to live them. We won't read the references, just the words themselves. But here we go. You ready? Out loud, together, be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Stop. I'm waiting. No? Okay. Let's go on. Wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You can't avoid it. Serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Clothe others with, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. There it is. Love one another. 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 And all God's people said, love one another. (laughs) See, that's just, just about 60 exhortations in scripture to actually do something towards one another in the family of God. A well-known pastor once quipped that it seems like the primary activity of the church is one anothering one another. I disagree. I think it's kissing each other. I, I, think, I think we're going to start that as a practice here at LivePoint. 
people at the door will now be kissing you on the way in. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that, that it says right after one of those things about, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss, it says, do not go on biting each other. That's, that's, that's good. See, we need to understand these not merely as suggestions or ideals or, or just good ideas, but they're commands. Every one of them comes in a command form. As directives regarding the life of the church and the ways that we relate to one another within the family of God. It's impressive to me that, that at either end of this list, like bookends, is the repeated exhortation, love one another. It's appropriate because every one of the one another's has to do with some aspect of the outworking of love. I'll let you decide which of them is most important in your life at the moment. I tend to think that things like loving one another and forgiving each other and bearing with each other are daily occurrences. They're they're daily challenges. But how can we do all these things without knowing each other? There is an implication, as I said last week, and I said, you know, biblically, you can't go to chapter and verse and see a command that says join a church as an official member. But as we read the commands in Scripture and as we we, uh, read between the lines about the early church, it is impossible to understand those teachings and those descriptions without the, the assumption, the underlying assumption of a radical commitment to a local body of believers. And so, as I said last week, the whole idea of church partnership is to stop dating the church and get married. Make the commitment. Help your leaders know that you're here and that you are part of the flock that we are to care for. Help others know that you are here and they can count on you to serve where you are needed. How do we, how do we understand these one another's, these each other's without knowing each other? How, how can we live like a typical 21st century Christian in isolation from other believers and, and be responsive and obedient to the, and obedient to these commands? How, how do we do that? I don't know how it's possible. When we come together on Sunday mornings to worship and to learn from the word of God, we sit in rows and we look at the backs of each other's heads. But in virtually every other setting, when we gather, we assemble in something that looks like a circle. Why is that? It's symbolic of the reality that the cultivation of community requires circles, not rows. So as we close this morning, let me ask you, are you volitionally, intentionally taking your place within a circle of relationship here at LifePoint Church? Your circle may be a life group. It may be a ministry team. It may be a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, a men's small group. Are you taking your place? Where are you taking your place within a circle of relationships here at LifePoint? 
Are you intentionally, secondly, making room in your current circle for others whom God is bringing to our church? Every Sunday we have guests that come through our doors. Are you opening your circle to them? So will you, LifePoint, in 2024, will you pursue a deep knowledge and personal relationship with God? And will you commit to cultivating deep relationships with one another within LifePoint Church? It's a choice that each of us has to make. One day a teacher of the law asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love each other. Know God, know each other. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have called us into relationship with yourself. Thank you that you have made yourself knowable, eminently knowable, thoroughly knowable, and and most fully in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would come to know you better, that we would choose to know you better, that we would follow hard after you. And that we would follow hard after each other, that, that we would not be casual in our commitment to community here at LifePoint Church. Your word says, or Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And Lord, teach us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.